$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part two of the eight passengers case. If you haven't listened to Thursday's episode, you absolutely need to listen to that one before listening to this one because you need all of the context. So definitely make sure you listen to that episode before diving into this one. A whole 0% of you are here to listen to me and my small talk or lack thereof. Anywho, so let's go ahead and dive in. Thursday's episode left off in April of either 2022 or 2023, but I think it's 2022, when neighbors of the Frankie family started noticing the absence of the younger Frankie children. While those neighbors noticed their absence, neighbors in Ivan's Utah started noticing their presence. These were neighbors of none other than Jody freaking Hildebrandt, the queen of connections, hater of one-star reviews. One of Jody's neighbors told the Daily Mail that one day, six to eight weeks prior to the event that led to criminal charges, so six to eight weeks prior to August 30th of this year, they saw a bunch of kids out picking weeds outside of Jody's house. And house is not exactly how I'd personally choose to describe her fortress. It's listed online as being 5,000 square feet with only three bedrooms, but five and a half baths. Those rooms have to be massive to fill up 5,000 square feet, and this place looks like a fancy above-ground dungeon. It's one story above ground, but looks like it may be made out of concrete and this sprawling mass of rooms with maybe a courtyard in the middle and is listed at over $3 million. The home is in a neighborhood, but the neighborhood is pretty spread out, and homes are a good walking distance away from one another. You've got massive red rocks in the background and sporadic brush on the grounds. This neighbor said she saw children picking weeds, but I don't know what a weed would even look like in that area compared to what does manage to survive out there. The neighbor told the Daily Mail that it was above 100 degrees that day, and even when it was too hot for the neighbor to bear the outside heat anymore, the kids did stay outside. The consensus seems to be that the kids were spending most of their time in that house, But what struck neighbors as odd is that they never heard or saw them playing outside as you would expect. It was strange, and neighbors also noted seeing Ruby's branded eight-passengers van parked in front of the home regularly. Neighbors didn't see much of the kids, but on August 30th of 2023, so just a few weeks ago, they realized maybe 
Why? At around 10.50 a.m., a neighbor a couple of houses down from Jody called 911 to say that a 12-year-old child had walked from his neighbor's house asking for food and water. That's concerning enough, but then the neighbor said that the child had duct tape around his ankles. Knowing the age of the child, we can deduce that it's likely R, the youngest son. One of the children whom Ruby couldn't be bothered to bring lunch to, and the one that Kevin and Ruby stated was born thinking about other people, couldn't tell a lie if he tried, and sympathy cried when his own mother broke her favorite casserole dish. The neighbor went on to say that the child had come from his neighbor Jody's house, and he knew there had been problems over there. He probably had no idea how horrific those problems truly were. He said the child was emaciated, hungry, and thirsty with duct tape around his ankles. So naturally, the dispatcher asked him if his doors were locked, and he said no, they were sitting on the front porch while they got something to eat or drink. He did specify, though, that the boy had asked him to call the police because he was very afraid. The neighbor noted that the homes were pretty far spread apart, so the boy would have had to have walked a ways to get there. That realization seemed to spark a question in the neighbor who asked the boy how he got out of the house. The boy told him that he left through the porch, but let me tell you, reports state that this boy escaped from that house through a window. You'll see as the call goes on that the boy had trouble talking about what had been going on and seemed to be under the impression that what was done to him was his fault. The call continues, and you can hear this online, Court TV released it along with other outlets, but the neighbor reiterates that the boy's ankles were taped up, but the child wouldn't tell him why. He says the duct tape is around each individual ankle, and there's sores on the skin around it. It's at this point that it sounds like maybe the neighbor's wife points to the boy's wrists because the man gets audibly choked up as he tells the dispatcher that there's also tape around the boy's wrists. The man tries to hold it together as he tells the dispatcher that he thinks this boy has been detained. It seemed like he was trying to find the right way to describe what he was seeing without further traumatizing the emaciated and duct taped child sitting with him. The neighbor stated, obviously, he's covered in wounds. He's talking about the boy right here who has the duct tape on him and wounds around bindings does not happen overnight. And even one night would have been one night too many. The dispatcher asks about where the boy's parents are. And he said that he doesn't know where his mom is, but he knows where his dad is. And it's nowhere near there that he doesn't live around there. We heard in last week's episode how Kevin Frankie was reportedly alienated from the home earlier in the year and living with a minder who was watching over him. Nonetheless, the questions prompted the neighbor to ask if there were any other children still in the house that he had run from, and he said there was two. The ages of the children were reportedly 10 and 14, which would make them E, the youngest Frankie child, and J, who is R's older sister. The neighbor struggled to find the words, but eventually asked if the other children had wounds on them as well. You then hear the child say what sounds like, nothing bad is going on with them, it's just me. 
And that right there was the sound of each and every one of our hearts shattering into oblivion. The neighbor told the operator to kind of take the boy's assessment that everyone else was fine with a grain of salt and for good reason. The child had told him that the reason he had duct tape around his wrists was his own fault. There is never a scenario on this planet where a child has duct tape around their extremities and they deserve it. As the call goes on, the neighbor learns that Jody may be still at the house that the boy escaped from, and his urgency for police response intensifies right there. He told the dispatchers that she was a bad lady, he just didn't realize how bad she was. The dispatcher obviously wanted to keep him on the line until police got there, so she asked the man if the boy had anything with him. He said that he didn't, just a long sleeve shirt that was too big for him in the middle of a Utah summer and shorts. He referenced the boy having stocking feet, and I had to Google this, but it seems to mean that the boy didn't have shoes on. Bolstering the fact that he didn't simply walk out of that house, he escaped, walking in nothing but his socks in the Utah heat until he found someone to give him something to eat and drink and call the police. The neighbor told the dispatcher that the police needed to get there as soon as possible. First responders were already on their way, and their radio traffic has been since posted to JodyHildebrandt.com. It looks like someone may have purchased her name as a website, and in all of the glorious pettiness that we are all here for, has used it to expose everything there is to know about her. Over the radio, you can hear first responders struggle to find words as he tells the dispatcher he needs to get this child to the hospital because, and I quote, the wounds on his leg are pretty, pretty good. You also hear someone say, child looks very emaciated. They planned on getting him taken to the hospital ASAP, but another responder stops them saying that if he's alert and breathing, they need to take pictures of the state that he's in before taking him to the hospital. It's hard to hear that anything stood in the way of this child getting treatment, but this was a smart move in the long run when it comes to holding those accountable who are responsible for whatever was done to him. He was ultimately put on a medical hold due to the state that he was in. In other radio traffic, it sounds like officers at Jody's home were looking for the other children. One responder comes over the radio and states that he says there is a panic room under the garage. He said he was referencing it as a safe room and even mentioned something about Fort Knox. I can only assume this information and the he they're referencing is a child at this point. And another man comes over the radio saying they found it, but they can't get into it. That there's a big wheel on the front and branding for Liberty Safe Company. The way that I ran to Google is a speed that cannot be measured. And there are two vault doors listed on the Liberty Safe Company's website. Only one of those doors appears to have a wheel on it. And you can get it for the low, low price of $8,599. Who in the fuck needs a safe room, panic room, Fort Knox vaulted door room under their garage? And now ask that question again. After knowing that a child escaped from that home through a window, emaciated with duct tape on his wrists and ankles. 
Inside that home, police found another child who they reported also looked emaciated, but it took four hours for them to convince her to seek medical treatment. In the end, medical professionals did deem her emaciated. Other radio traffic seems to indicate that Jody may have pulled up to the house when officers were there, but it was a little hard to tell who they were talking about and when. Though there was no confusing when someone came over the radio and said that they had the custodial parent of the child in the ER. They referenced the parent as her, so we can only assume they're referencing Ruby here. But that begs the question, how did Ruby know her child was in the hospital, let alone which hospital he was in? The radio traffic states that she came to her PD, whatever that means, and took off when cops told her that they would talk to her in a second. Both Ruby and Jody were taken into custody by the end of the day, but not before the Daily Mail states that officers swarmed the Frankie home and made their way inside, doing damage to the front door, but no one was home. Where Ruby was located when she was arrested, I don't know, but also, where were the other kids? We know from previous reports that people saw them being left at the home for weeks at a time, but if they weren't there, where were they? According to KUTV, they were found in good condition at a family friend's house in American Fork. You know, you've hit rock fucking bottom when someone has to report that your children were found in quote unquote good condition. We know that S had moved out previously, and it looks like C had gone off to college as soon as he could, so that left R and E, the reported victims of whatever may have happened in Jody's home, and then J and A, the teenaged Frankie daughters. The 911 call indicated that there were two other children in Jody's home when he escaped, but there may have actually only been one, being E. Ruby and Jody were initially charged with two counts of aggravated child abuse each, but that has since been bumped up to six counts each. A county attorney told Insider, each defendant is accused of causing or permitting serious physical injury to the victims in three different ways. One, a combination of multiple physical injuries or torture. Two, starvation or malnutrition that jeopardizes life. And three, causing severe emotional harm. If found guilty, each and every one of those counts comes with the possibility of 1 to 15 years in prison and up to a $10,000 fine. Following their arrest, the Frankie's oldest daughter, S, posted a photo of police outside of her mother's home with the caption, Finally. Fox 13 quoted another post of hers, which read, Hi all, today has been a big day. Me and my family are so glad justice is being served. We've been trying to tell the police and CPS for years about this and so glad they finally decided to step up. Kids are safe, but there's a long road ahead. Please keep them in your prayers and also respect their privacy. And while it finally seemed like justice may be coming their way, it seemed like Jody and Ruby may have already had a defense in mind, a defense that seemed to allude to the two victims as being dangerous. When Jody was arrested, she didn't speak to the police and requested an attorney, but did tell authorities that R&E should not be allowed around other kids. Their mother's business partner, whose house they escaped from, was telling authorities that they shouldn't be around other kids.
both Ruby and Jody were held without bail, and a woman who claims to have shared a cell with Ruby for three days came forward to speak to the Daily Mail. Of course she did. This purported cellmate states that Ruby seemed fixated on Jody. She couldn't understand why they'd been separated, and I can think of about a hundred reasons. But anyway, she wanted to know what was going on with Jody. The woman claiming to be a cellmate stated that Ruby was almost childlike, while Jody seemed to be all up in her feelings and looked like she had been crying. I guess Jody and the cellmate wound up crossing paths at some point, but Ruby's behavior certainly didn't sound like that of someone who was unaware that their child was malnourished and duct taped and just found out that their business partner might be involved. So take that into account. When it came time for their first hearing regarding the bail they were originally denied, Ruby did the fucking unthinkable. And I'm dropping a lot of F-bombs in this case, but I feel like it's warranted. Anywho, according to the Daily Mail, she went on for minutes spewing on about how one of her children had allegedly been sexually abusing the others, that the child had started looking at porn when they were just three years old, and I will be damned if we're not going to talk about this. If she's trying to reference R here, that child reportedly couldn't even walk until he was two and had some developmental delays. If she's trying to say that he knew how to spell and use a computer and watched porn at three years old, not only does she seem absolutely delusional, I question her parenting more now than I ever did before. And to make this abundantly clear, Ruby's definition of porn is laughable. She once uploaded a video going apeshit over some TikTok flash mob her daughter was doing with the school. The song she was up in arms about was Flow Right As Low and called the lyrics hardcore porn. So keep that in mind when judging her definition of literally anything. Ruby went on to state that after one child abused the other, the other child joined the first in abusing other children. She claims the child admitted to sexually abusing 20 children, including family members and neighbors, but provided zero evidence of any of her claims, and not a soul had come forward saying anything negative about any of the Frankie children until this hearing. Out of the pews arose an attorney whom the Daily Mail reports was representing one of the children's alleged victims who wanted to tell the judge about the alleged molestation, but any attorney would know that that's not how this works. This was a hearing about child abuse after two children were found malnourished and one had escaped the house with duct tape around his extremities. What was the attorney going to do here? Tell the judge the abuse was justified because of what his client wanted to bring to the court's attention? A molestation investigation would have to be done completely separate from the child abuse investigation, and it would not negate the actions of purported abuse against these children. It's a hard stance to take here to maybe not believe or even question when someone says this is happening, but the source of this information, Ruby Frankie, made it difficult. Family members had a hard time believing what Ruby was saying, and one family member is on a mission to make sure that these children's reputation isn't ruined by the woman who she claims ruined hers after what she says was a year of similar abuse. And we're talking about Jody here. Previous clients of Jody's counseling also chimed in about how their spouses were made to believe they had addictions they didn't have in order to turn their families against them. 
You could have heard a pin drop when Ruby finally stopped talking, but regardless of whether or not she was saying was the truth, the judge could only take her at her word and erred on the side of caution. The Daily Mail reports that the judge decided that the child she alleged to be abusive needed to be placed in a home where there was no other children. One of Ruby's sisters-in-law told the Daily Mail that she thinks Ruby's lying and blaming her kids to try and validate what she did to them. She thinks Ruby will say anything to save herself, but it's Jody's niece that puts almost all of this into a different and more horrifying perspective. I'm going to respect pronouns here and Jody's niece prefers they them. They told KUTV that when they were a teen, they were under Jody's care for about a year. In that year, they reported that they were tied up, duct taped, blindfolded, and isolated. They said they experienced psychological, emotional, and spiritual abuse. All of that sounds terrifyingly familiar, but it gets worse. The niece states that they were told that they were dangerous to be around and that people were afraid of them. It got to the point where the niece started to fear herself. The niece told KUTV that Jody told them that they were a sex addict who was addicted to masturbation and porn. To be clear here, Jody was telling her niece these things about her own self. Even though Jody's niece had never had sex, masturbated, or watched porn, it was driven into them so frequently and with so much conviction that they started to believe it because Jody was the adult here. Jody was reportedly also convinced that her niece had had several abortions. Her niece reports that they were subjected to 12-hour stints of isolation, but outside of that was given no privacy. They couldn't so much as use the bathroom with the door closed because they say Jody was convinced they would be masturbating. Her niece stated that the punishment would only increase if they denied doing what they were accused of, so they started confessing even though it wasn't true and would even confess to random shit like being addicted to drugs just to make it look like they were making progress and maybe the punishment would lessen. As soon as the niece heard that Ruby said her child had confessed to abusing 20 children, they immediately wondered what that child had been enduring when he allegedly confessed to it. There was reportedly someone assigned to monitor Jody's niece whenever Jody wasn't around and report back if they did anything Jody wouldn't have approved of, and that by the time they reportedly went to police to let them know what Jody had done, they say that Jody had destroyed their reputation to the point where no one believed them. After hearing Ruby make those accusations about her child, they felt like they couldn't just sit back and let them continue what she considers abuse when it comes to that child's ability to live a normal life one day, a life where this accusation doesn't follow them everywhere they go. On JodyHildebrandt.com, which seems to have been purchased and taken over by a vigilante internet hero, they managed to collect client reviews of Jody's and put them into one nice, neat little place, so let's talk about some of them. 
One man said that he went to her and without her permission, says she called the man's wife and told her lies, then encouraged his children to block their father from being able to contact them. And this would be on brand for Jody, who once had her counseling license suspended for breaking patient confidentiality. There were several reviews left by couples who say they were counseled by Jody, including one from a man who says his wife was brainwashed into thinking he had an addiction and was then convinced he was hiding something from her. They wound up having to go to another counselor to undo the damage Jody had done. One counselor who claims to have counseled couples post Jody Hildebrand said that they had actually trained under Jody at one point and that she watched as she tore families apart. She said she believed Jody was evil and referenced her counseling as a cult. Another reviewer commented that Jody was one of two counselors that their counselor said they would never recommend. One man said he went to Jody for counseling, and while he managed to get out and save his marriage, he knows of 10 couples who are now divorced after seeing her. Another commenter stated that she knew friends and family who had gone to Jody for counseling and that she decided to make an appointment to see all of this for herself. She said she was disgusted and that Jody reminds her of an abuser in a relationship and that she isolates her clients by making them think that their friends and family are toxic so they only have Jody to rely on. That would track if we look back at the full cutoff of what seemed like all of Kevin and Ruby's family members who said they hadn't seen them or the kids in years. The previous review stated that her sister had confided in Jody about something personal, but somehow it made its way into being workplace gossip, which wound up impacting not only her work, but her personal relationships as well. Kevin Ruby's husband worked at BYU up until the spring of this year, so you have to wonder what led to his leaving that position. He seemed to hold it for quite some time, and being a professor is kind of a big deal, and one that you don't let go of easily when it comes to tenure. No one seems to know why he left or under what circumstances, but it certainly does make you wonder. One man reviewed Jody's practices and said that she used shaming techniques to make people think you were dangerous to be around. And it certainly feels like that might be what's happening when it comes to Ruby's long-winded rant in court regarding two of her children. The reviewer stated that a man in one of his men's groups was made to think that he was a danger to his family because he did a double take when a woman passed him. A double take made him a danger to his family and flow right as low as hardcore porn. Got it. Both Ruby and Jody were denied bail again, and following the hearing, KUTV reported that Jody had suffered some kind of medical event which led her to be hospitalized for days. What a fucking travesty. It looks like Jody was also at some point taken to the medical wing of the jail for who the hell knows why. They were supposed to be back in court for yet another bail hearing on September 18th, but that was postponed due to the overwhelming amount of discovery that both sides still need to sift through. Judging by the neighbors' accounts, the years of family vlogging, and the history of connections, I'd venture to guess that this is going to be way bigger than any of us can even imagine at this point, and that's terrifying. It's estimated that based on calculations of risk, Ruby and Jody may actually get a bail amount at their next hearing, and knowing what we know about the system, that is extremely scary. 
Both Ruby and Jody come from means, and I can't imagine a bail amount that they can't afford. One could only hope that the bail would come with some stipulations like barring them from any contact with their children or any witnesses and GPS tracking so that they have to show up when their day in court finally comes. Kevin Frankie has not been charged with anything regarding the alleged child abuse and has maintained that he had no knowledge of what was going on. His attorney has made several media appearances speaking on Kevin's behalf, alluding to the idea that Kevin feels like a victim of Jody's as well. It seems like he may have returned to the home he once left and has removed all of the eight passengers branding from the family van. The minor children have all been placed into state care and not the care of Kevin, which is interesting. Though Kevin's attorney has stated that Kevin has never been accused of physically abusing his children. Viewers and those following this case have had a hard time digesting those sentiments, having watched him actively participate in years and years of eight passengers videos, which included the homework for cash incident, the wilderness camp, and the lunch incidents. I looked into everything I could possibly find when I decided I was going to cover this case. I only intended on this being one in the news episode, but as you can see, there is no way you can possibly condense all of this into 30 minutes. It is impossible. My gut tells me that this is only the beginning and that what will come out during future court dates and FOIA requests from news agencies will turn stomachs and break hearts. The Frankie's oldest daughter, S, posted a Google Doc and encouraged everyone to input concerning moments into it so they could have it organized in one place. I'm going to link that Google Doc in the highlight for this episode, as well as clips of the videos referenced in part one and part two, so you can see all of this for yourself. This is a case that I am going to be following daily and will update you as soon as new, relevant information becomes available and will give you updates as they come. Regardless of the response you saw in last week's episode, if you see something, say something. You never know how many people have noticed the same thing, and you might be the only one ready and willing to stand up for a child who cannot advocate for themselves. For photos pertaining to this case, check out the eight passengers highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there today at noon Eastern, where we go live and talk about today's case and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just two whole dollars a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by a listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Okay, we are officially at the end of this episode, which means that it is time to read or view them in my whole entire day. This one is from And And I'm Brit and says, Heather Ashley is the best true crime podcaster out there, in my opinion. She's informative, but entertaining at the same time and always keeps you on your toes while explaining the case. Keep up the amazing work. Um, And And I'm Brit. I love you so much. Thank you for being nice for absolutely no reason. You made my entire day. I mean it when I say it. You are valuable. You are valued. I love you so much. I appreciate you so much. We're best friends now. Okay. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Love you. Bye.